From the Ground Up, a podcast of the Alabama Extension Home Grounds team, educating you about home landscapes, gardens, and home pests. Today we have Molly Hendry. She is the Associate Director of Garden Support for the Friends of the Birmingham Botanical Garden. Welcome to the podcast, Molly. Thank you for having me. I know you from being a former student of mine, mm-hmm. and uh, I've kind of followed your career <laughs> and kind of where you've been. So kind of yeah. take us where you come from, uh, all through Auburn, where you got your education at, mm-hmm. and just kind of take us through your educational career. Yeah, so I, I actually grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, people always ask me like how I fell in love with gardens, and I really, I think most people can, kind of can pin a moment in their childhood, and I grew up kind of outside of Birmingham on 40 acres. We had woods and creeks and lakes, and I just grew up playing outside out all day, every day, and um, when it came time to choose what I wanted to study, my dad was like, you know, I really think you have an architect's brain. Like you love art and um, you're really artistic, but you have like a science math brain too. So he went down to Auburn to tour the um, architecture department. And I was kind of seeing what the students did and stuff. I was like, it like intrigues me, but I don't know that like I'm passionate about buildings. I just, it wasn't like clicking with me. And my dad was like, oh, I still think you think like an architect. Have you thought about landscape architecture? So Um, I think that's when we crossed paths. I was still in high school and came down to tour the horticulture department because at Auburn at the time, they sent you through the horticulture program and then you got your master's in landscape architecture. So it really was once I stepped foot into Funches Hall at Auburn, I just thought, these are my people. (laughs) I want to be here. I think you took us to the Patterson greenhouses and toured us around. Um, So I was one of those rare students that applied to Auburn, got in, declared my major, and never changed. I just fell in love with it. And yeah, that's that's a pretty rare thing for somebody to not change their major. I, I probably changed like 10 times. So. <laughs> all my friends like had their moment of turmoil of like changing all around. I just always was like, nope, love it here. Love plants, love what I get to do every single day. And I almost had a moment where I didn't go into um, the Master's of Landscape Architecture program, but um Again, you were part of the study abroad trip after our sophomore year, and I we studied in England um, for six weeks in the Midlands of England at this little horticultural college. Um, and they, y'all did a great job of getting us out of the classroom, and the, our professors in England did and took us to a lot of gardens. I just remember there was one specific garden where I was like, it just made you feel so many things that I thought, you know, this had to be designed. Like someone crafted this to make me feel this way. And that's when I was like, oh, I really want to know how to design. I want to know how to make people feel the way that I do in this place. And so. Do you remember which garden that was? Yes, it was Rousham, oh, okay. um, which is uh, in Oxfordshire. It's right down the road from Blenheim Palace, which is the one that everyone's heard of. Um, and Rousham really doesn't get the notoriety, but it was one of the first English landscape movement gardens. And so there's really no flowers. It's not about flash and color. It's really about how you move through space. And that was the first time I'd felt like a rope was attached to my chest. And like, I had to see what was at the end of this path and around this corner and it pulled you in and popped you out. And it was just intoxicating kind of how it drew you in. And so that was when I knew, okay, I want to be a designer, but in my heart of hearts, I'm a plant person. So I always kind of thought, well, I'll um, go through landscape architecture and I'll go work for a firm and be the plant person. Um, and then, so I was in grad school doing my thesis and I applied for this fellowship through the Garden Club of America. That's a partnership with the Royal Horticulture Society in the UK. Um, and actually had the honor of being awarded that fellowship. And so I got to spend the, the year after I finished grad school in England for 10 months uh, working in 
all these different gardens. Um, I basically had to hand them a wish list of gardens that I wanted to work in. About every two months, I was moving to a different placement. Um, so after, and through that, I worked at a lot of public gardens. Um, I had worked at a public garden in the States, in Delaware, um, after I finished undergrad. Um, but then even working in another country in public gardens, I just felt like, oh, I just love like being getting to engage with one place as a designer you're kind of engaging with a place and you design something then you kind of move on but in a public garden you got the chance to really get to know how the place ticks the community around it um the gardeners that all work there and i just loved that so um, i finished the 10 months came back to the states and um ended up connecting with my now boss at the birmingham botanical gardens and i kind of you know, came came back to Birmingham as this little garden orphan who was like, I've had all these experiences. I don't exactly know what I'm supposed to do. I have these degrees, but like, what does that mean for me in Birmingham, Alabama? Um, and I met him and he had all these needs at the gardens. And so ended up coming on staff here with the Friends of Birmingham Botanical Gardens, where I've been the last f- almost five and a half years, wow. which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so definitely have learned a lot and it's been great to kind of take all these experiences that I've had in other parts of the country and the world and apply them to my hometown. So it's kind of a full circle experience. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've followed you around and through social media and just kind of being around <laughs> around town and seeing you uh, at various things. But, you know, it's just a, to watch you progress through all the things has just been really amazing. And just your experience that you've had overseas especially mm-hmm. uh and i know you you're all into travel and things, so, <laughs> I am. um you know just that experience of having that international component mm-hmm. and just the honor of getting the fellowship mm-hmm. that was a huge honor i mean how many people do they usually accept for that well um each year they choose one american fellow and one british fellow and you wow. swap places so the british fellow comes to the states and um so yeah, it was, I kind of went for it and was like, there's no way. <laughs> um, so it was just a huge, it was very humbling to get be given that opportunity. And I think I'll always think of my life as like before that fellowship and after, because it yeah. kind of just um, really shaped me, not even just as a horticulturist, but just as a person getting to live in another culture. And, um, you know, I was there from 2016 to 2017 and there's just, it was a crazy time in the world and there was a lot going on in England too. And so just getting to kind of, go into another culture and be the visitor and see how they do things. But I mean, it's like the Mecca for gardening. So just even seeing how much the country itself cares about gardening and mm-hmm. you're on a train, I would be going to travel on a Saturday and you're looking out the window and everyone's in their back gardens gardening. And um, I just loved that it was kind of a national love. So what was your favorite garden of all the ones that you worked at? Oh, it's such It's kind of like, I feel like I took on like a different persona every time (laughs) each place I moved. Um, So I guess I'll just kind of walk through a couple of my placements. But I started at um, the RHS's flagship garden at Wisley. It's in Surrey outside of London. And so the RHS is just this incredible organization. Um, They really just advocate for a love of gardening among um, in in the countries. They have five different gardens in different counties all around the country and they are also doing research and education they put out incredible publications Um, they host flower shows they're really just engaging the public in every way possible around gardening um and so that was amazing to be there and rotate through the different garden teams i went to sheffield university and worked with two professors in the landscape architecture department so i got to sit in on their classes um and then they also took me to projects they were doing um, I went to the Eden Project in Cornwall. 
uh, and worked with the landscape architect on staff there. She was the first person I'd met that was a landscape architect working at a public garden. So she just had this intimate knowledge of not only the Eden Project, but was also involved in a lot of international projects that the Eden Project had taken under their charity. Um, so it's neat to see how she also was able to use what the Eden Project was doing in Cornwall, but also as outreach. Um, but I think my favorite placement was at Great Dixter, which is um, in East Sussex. It's south of London, um, right outside of Hastings, near the Channel. And so um, it's this little seven-acre garden, But um, and I had heard about it. It's kind of um, the place to be if you're entering the garden world. Fergus Garrett's the head gardener there, and he um, came after Christopher Lloyd, who was just an icon of British gardening, wrote a ton of books. He wrote every li every week for Country Life magazine, um, was really good friends with Beth Chateau and all the big names in British gardening. Um, and Fergus, what I loved about him is he just had this huge heart for his students because he had been a student once. And so he could run that garden with a much smaller staff. But while I was there, there was a student from um, Maryland, a student from Japan, Sweden, um, Portugal, Germany, Yorkshire. Um, there's kind of like the whole world comes to Dixter to learn what they're doing there. And they just really experiment with pushing the boundaries on how you combine different plants and color and succession through the seasons and um, also huge passion for ecology and, you know, how many insects, you know, different parts of the garden are drawing to it. And propagating these really rare heirloom species that are falling out of you know our living memory just because of these big box stores they're you know you kind of just have like the things that everyone puts in their garden but Fergus hosts these plant fairs and invites um, nurserymen from all over Europe and the UK that are propagating really interesting and um, uh, are experimenting and just to help get the word out and keep these um, heirloom varieties kind of in perpetuation so I just loved the whole life around Dixter and I got to live um, on property and then work every day in the garden and then there's this amazing community that surrounds it and so we were going to um, you know garden club meetings in Northam which is the tiny town we were in and then there's um, Charlotte Molesworthy who has this incredible topiary garden and um, this man he lived out in the country and had five of the national collections for the UK so we went out when it was um, witch hazel time and he all his witch hazels were in bloom and he has the national collection for wisteria and um, I can't remember all the national collections he had but just he knew how to graft every witch hazel every every single way possible there's just this depth to the knowledge that was there that I just hadn't been exposed to um, and just being around people that were my age that were just as passionate about plants and gardening that was really fun yeah i think you hit the nail on the head when you uh when you said that you know you see people out in their backyard yeah everywhere and and having been over there myself several times you know they they have a passion for gardening that i mean we can't even touch mm -hmm. i mean it's mm -hmm. uh, you know land is at a premium there so yes. they really value their space and so yes. everywhere you go every little house has some kind of little garden mm -hmm. or just a you know a window box or something like that yeah in our american minds we you know we're not space isn't maybe a premium here it is in the cities but you know we are used to much larger yards much larger houses having many more things and they just do so much with a lot less that it was really challenging to me and at dixter they didn't have a huge budget and i remember uh it's still a charity even though it's super well known um and was just like you know I'd rather be in our situation than to have 
all the money in the world, like some of um, the really famous gardens, because it actually forces you to be more creative. So tell me what you do here at the garden. How have you integrated that experience here at the garden? That is a great question, because when I got back to Birmingham, I honestly was pretty like, what in the world am I, you know, that was the dream. What do I do? And I honestly didn't think there was much happening in Birmingham. And so um, I came on staff here and I just was so eager. I was like, you know, I want to learn everything about every single one of these gardens. And um, my original uh, position here, I was the garden assessment project leader. So I was brought on to, we have 26 different gardens that make up the Birmingham Botanical Gardens. So it's my job to know and understand the history of each one of those gardens, um, how they've changed through the years. And then, and some of them, we're kind of missing the mark on what the design intention is. So it's my job to perform an assessment and kind of know, okay, here are areas where we need to really focus our resources and get this back on track. Or maybe sometimes the design intent, you know, what it was crafted to be in the 60s isn't what it needs to be in 2023. And so we kind of have rethought some of the gardens and what their future should be. Um, So in that way, I'm able to combine my plant knowledge but also design knowledge and have the big picture. But this has really given me confidence in how to have an idea and execute it on the ground and garner support. So sometimes I'm working with our grants writer and we're going out for specific grants to fund certain projects. Sometimes I'm getting the support of volunteers and we're doing things ourselves. Or sometimes, you know, me and my boss work very closely with a lot of contractors. And so we're helping kind of cast vision and we're on site managing those kind of projects that contractors are doing for us. Um, But I think my experience in England helped me just see they're very good. Um, Each profession is not in a silo. They're very good at a lot of the most well-known landscape architects in the country began as as gardeners, Um, worked at some of the best botanical institutions throughout the UK. And so that really gives them an understanding of plants that then informs their design decisions. And so here I was kind of walking into a position where there had never been a designer on staff before. So there was a lot of decisions that were being made that people just assumed were functional decisions and didn't know that there was actually design thinking that needed to inform that decision as well. So a lot of it has also been just educating people like, hey, I just would love to sit in on that meeting. And I know we might be talking about stormwater, but how we mitigate stormwater actually has design implications. And there's beautiful ways that we can do it and not just functional ways that we can do it. And um, it's been great to have my boss, Jane, she just is like the master. She gets things done and does it really, really well. So we work really well because I kind of am like the big picture person. She's really good at making sure we use our money in the most effective way possible and get it done really, really well. So the garden, did it start in the 60s or when was it created? Yes, the gardens was established in 1962. So um the road that you drove in on this morning is called lane park road so this property and the zoo across the street actually used to be one big public park called lane park Um, and then in the 60s it was divided to become the zoo and the uh, birmingham botanical gardens so have you integrated some of the historical i know you said it Mm -hmm. wasn't the best designs or the best way to change something up Mm -hmm. have you tried to go back to the original design and and try to incorporate some of that into the new things that you're doing yeah it's actually i mean there there's incredible designs here i think what what i kind of walked into was these there are these amazing frameworks and gardens that have been designed in each different garden like the rose garden was designed by a certain landscape architect they brought another really notable landscape architect in for the japanese garden the call wildflower garden and so there's lots of different um, amazing minds that had helped craft Birmingham Botanical Gardens. But over the years, things change. 
And if the designer isn't involved anymore, sometimes there's decisions made that actually draw you back from what the original intention was. So my job has been first, I've got to understand what the original intention was, then make a call on, do we need to go back to that or not? Um, and so that's manifested in different ways. Like the Japanese garden, that's one where like, uh, it just was masterfully crafted in the sixties when it was created. And so, but the designer, he was out there actually directing all the contractors, helping lay each stone. And so there weren't drawings for that. So it's, I have to kind of go out there and observe and read back through like board, board meeting minutes of things that they were discussing or read correspondence between the rock contractor and you know the person doing the drainage and kind of piece together what the intention of the designer was that's the garden where we want to take it back to what it was but you know there's another garden we got a grant for and it was a species rhododendron garden it um we kind of lost the whole collection our last big drought in 2016 and that was one where i started looking at it i was like oh rhododendrons really are we're a little too warm for rhododendrons here but we aren't too warm actually our native azaleas thrive in our climate and they're still rhododendrons they're still in that same genus um so we're actually taking that garden away from like the evergreen rhododendrons that you might see up in north carolina and changing it to be a little jewel box of all of our native azaleas um so that was one where i was like okay i understand the original intent but here's where we need to kind of pivot that i know we went to um we took a team trip uh on the home grounds team Mm -hmm. uh to north carolina we went Mm -hmm. to biltmore Oh, neat. And we got to visit with the uh, the person who's in charge of all their horticulture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things he was doing is he was going back to Olmstead's original designs mm-hmm. for Biltmore and kind of changing things up. Uh, you know, like the, uh, on the, if you're facing the house on the left side, that huge hedge, mm-hmm. they were taking that out. And so what oh, they wow. did, the original hedge is near the conservatory down, down below there. Mm-hmm. So they had propagated that and they let a nursery down in South Georgia grow it. And so right after we left, uh, that was first of October, they were going to replace that entire hedge. And that's kind of an icon, but it wasn't the original design by Olmstead. Mm-hmm. It was really neat to hear how his history of the d- original design is now coming back and kind of resurging, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of cities are doing that with their downtown areas mm-hmm. too. So. It just kind of all is working together. Everybody wants to kind of return to the classic. Yeah, it's really easy when you're in these moments, like when we're in July and we have an irrigation main break and it's kind of like all hands on decks and decisions are being made. You can end up kind of doing triage to kind of fix a problem. Um, and it's hard to keep that that big picture in mind of where you want to go. So I get how things can kind of veer away from it. Um but it's kind of my job to like keep us like our eyes on the prize, you know. Yeah. Sometimes that means you have to take out things that, you know, are hard are good plants. Sometimes like we had to take down this beautiful magnolia macrophylla in our call wildflower garden because it was it was out of place. It was a beautiful tree in the wrong spot, and so um, sometimes you just make those hard edits. We preach that all the time, you know, right plant, right place. Yes, and that's that is so important. And you know, anytime we do design, we always have to look at that mm-hmm. and. We try to emphasize it, you know, a thousand times, mm-hmm. you know, I say it all the time, but <laughs> so what are some of the projects that you're most proud of that you've completed here at the garden? Oh, there's really two that come to mind. The first kind of drawing on the England thing, you know, I came back and I've worked in all these like incredible perennial borders and in the South we're we're really comfortable with our woodies, with our trees and our shrubs, but um, unless you're like a really, you know, passionate gardener most people don't dabble in the perennials and so I was just 
eager to start doing something with perennials and I came across this plan in the Southern Living Garden which the magazine Southern Living created a garden here at BBG um, and they used it a lot for the magazines it was created in the late 70s early 80s um, and that garden by the time I got here just become very overgrown um, there weren't as many gardeners as there used to be so it just wasn't getting a ton of attention and so I was in the archives looking and I found this plan and I started looking and it was a perennial border and I was like oh, well, where in tarnation is that? You know, I don't see a perennial border anywhere anywhere around these parts. And as I investigated, I realized it was for the Southern Living Garden. And what had been a perennial border now just turned into a giant annual bed. And so in the summer, it was all these different colors of coleus, just a monoculture of coleus. In the winter, it was a monoculture of all these different colors of pansies. Um, and I just thought, wow, we're really missing a huge opportunity here to show people what's possible in a Southern Garden with perennials. And um, I went out for a grant for it. We didn't get it. And then I had a um, just this incredible man named Dr. John Floyd. And he was editor of Southern Living for a long time, was very passionate about that garden. And I had never done anything like this before. But he just said, like, listen, Molly, you do it. We'll find the money. Like, I want to see what you can do. And so he kind of just gave me the confidence I needed to redesign the whole border. He actually came and helped me plan it out the day the truck arrived with all the plants. Um, but it's really been a space where I'm able to experiment. So the first year there were things that people told me that for sure won't work. That's cute that you're going to try that. And I was like, well, I want to try a still be. So we tried a still be is bloomed reliably for me in the right spot the past four years in that border. I also wanted to try Artemisia Palace Castle. And everyone's like, that's cute. You want to try that? It's going to melt out. And I was like, well, I want to try it. And it melted out on me. So there's <laughs> some things you have to kind of fail on yourself. But um, in COVID, you know, I planted out 2019 and then COVID hit and we had to cancel our plant sale. Our perennials group had all these perennials in their lath house that weren't going to be sold. And they just said, Molly, take whatever you want. And so I had been observing the border all year. I knew things that needed to move, things that needed to come out. And I had ideas of what I wanted to put in. Ash kind of was a kid in candy shop in their lath house and got to plant a ton of stuff. Um, so that's one where I've just really been proud that I was able to put pen to paper and design it, order the plants, plant them out. And that's really been you know, an ongoing endeavor. It, it wasn't done the day that we planted it out. Yeah, I think one thing that a lot of people miss, especially mm -hmm. if they're in design or if they just want to do their yard themselves, mm -hmm. you know, a place like this is a great place to just come and get ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, go to a local botanical garden, see what, see what works together. I mean, mm -hmm. these people, people like you have planted these things and they've, they've designed it. So go out there and, and see what they have working together and see mm -hmm. what you like. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's what I, I hope it's um, inspirational for people. Like um, my goal is to get as many layers of planting in there. So each year I'm adding more and more tulips for the spring show. So like it was so exciting in March when all the tulips started coming up, seeing people see the color and they kind of like would beeline it up there. Um, but then there's things that happen beyond your control. Like we lost a huge post oak in there in March and it, it did not hit the border, but it was literally inches from it, but it took out about five other trees with it when it came down. And so now parts of my border that were deep shade are full sun. And so, you know, it's a living, breathing thing and you have to kind of respond and see things as an opportunity. And I did have my day where I was kind of like, I'm just gonna mourn this tree being <laughs> down and I'll get over it, we'll move on. Um, so things kind of, that's the beauty of gardening too, is that there's just things beyond your control. So one of your passions is native plants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're doing this podcast for homeowners. So, mm -hmm. you know, 
taking your story and your experience, what can a homeowner do to incorporate more natives into their plants, you know, without it being weedy? Right. What are some simple things they can add in their garden to add some diversity of natives Mm -hmm. or, you know, what's your favorite one? Yeah. Well, this actually touches on that the second project I'm most proud of is the Call Wildflower Garden. Um, And I... I think natives can sound intimidating. Like it's this whole class of plants that you have to have, like you have to be a botanist to understand. A lot of them are probably plants you remember from your childhood um, or you've seen and not really know what it is. Um, and they're so easy to make substitutes for a lot of things that are in our trade. And one thing that I've noticed with the frost that we had in December, the natives weren't touched by it. Wow. <laughs> All the things that are really struggling are the things from Asia, like camellias and azaleas. Um, the native azaleas had one of their best blooming seasons I've seen in a few years. Um, so there's actually a lot of benefits to planting plants that actually are native to here because they can withstand kind of weather shocks that we get. Um, they're kind of genetically programmed for that. Whereas things from you know Japan are kind of like, what is going on here? <laughs> um, but easy ways to incorporate it is just, um, you know, I think a lot of people feel pressure to either you have to go all the way or it has to be all native or there's no point. And that's just not true. Like just incorporating in some flowering things or even in your hedging using a native plant like um, inkberry or um, elysium. And those are easy shrubs that accomplish the same thing but they're native um and provide more habitat and stuff for our native um, pollinators and insects um and one way to get away from it being weedy because that is a common um you know i'm kind of so deep into like the horticultural thing that sometimes i forget and i sometimes have to take a step back and be like how is someone who doesn't know anything about plants seeing this and uh, a lot of times I use my friends, like, what do you see when you look at that? Um, and what you need to do is just have indications of intention. So whether you have um, kind of a meadowy area in your yard and you just mow a nice um, clean edge to it or line it with rocks or something like that, even just having an edge to something can indicate this is cared for, this is intentional. Um, and putting plants in the right place. Like a lot of times if you put things that really need to be in full sun and too much shade, they're going to get leggy and flop over on you. There's also incredible um, native plant cultivars that kind of address some of the garden needs for native plants. And a great resource to look at is Mount Cuba Center. They do trials. So they'll do a whole trial on all these different kinds of echinacea or flocks. And they just had one that came out with sedges. Sedges are an incredible ground cover to use in the shade and there's so many different kinds and you can almost treat them like grass um, and they're native and provide habitat and flower. Um, So I think just um, maybe not giving up if it's not easy. And a lot of nurseries sometimes don't carry um, native. So, but um, places like our spring plant sale and our fall plant sale, we have a native group and they're growing a lot of natives from seed and from cuttings and they're growing things that you can't just find anywhere else. But there's a lot of those kind of more homegrown nurseries around than you might think. You just have, kind of have to start looking. So you can't really go to Home Depot and get a cardinal flower. Um, but you can come here and I got a little pot and it actually had like six in one pot. So I paid $8 for one, but actually I'm going to get six plants out of it. And that's really exciting. Um, and seeds are a huge um, resource too. You don't just have to go to the garden center and you know buy a fully grown plant. You can actually kind of grow some things at home yourself, which is really fun. Yeah, and then you know 
I know y'all have a seed bank here we do. at the garden. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of people around the state that are wanting to start a, a seed library. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of growing in popularity and a lot of people don't know how to do that. So, mm-hmm. you know, Extension mm-hmm. can provide some resources for that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the internet's a great place for yes. some of that. It's also bad information, unfortunately. <laughs> Having some native plants that you can have is important in your garden to attract pollinators. And mm-hmm. I like what you said about you don't have to go all in, you mm-hmm. know, just try to incorporate a few at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it just, it grows over time. And maybe you just focus on like, I want to have some natives that sing in each season. So maybe in spring, you really focus on, you know, getting a patch of woodland flocks somewhere. And then for summer, um, you really focus on, you. I mean, Rubecchia is like the easiest thing in the whole entire world to grow. Um, and it could just really light up your garden and um, coneflowers are native. And then fall, you've got all different kinds of lobelia and asters um, and winter. Winter's a tougher one. <laughs> um, but there's all kinds of, um, even just leaving like some ornamental grasses up during winter, um, that provides a great habitat for insects and pollinators. So. Um, once you kind of get into it, you'll kind of start learning more and more and, and you kind of realize there's a whole, I could think I could spend my whole life trying to learn about this. Um, but it's also given me appreciation for where plants that we do use in our landscape actually come from in their native habitat. And that's one thing that I, um, really took away from my time in England is I'll be like, I can remember kneeling next to one of my friends and he was from Germany and he had gone to. I think he had gone to Turkey and um, explored and had seen these tulips that we were planting in the wild on the steps of this of Turkey, and he knew that they grow in on these limestone outcroppings on this kind of soil at this elevation. So when he's planting that plant in England, which is very far from Turkey, um, it, his decision in the garden was informed from what he knew about that plant in the wild. So I'm definitely not a native plant purist, where I think every situation always there you should always choose a native um i see so many benefits in them and there is just a a, you can look at a native landscape and it just feels like it it belongs in the place that it is Um, but there's also places for your camellias and for your japanese magnolias and um asian azaleas you know they all um they're part of our heritage as well in alabama in alabama so i also think that has a place in the conversation but um yeah, I think just start small and kind of see what piques your curiosity. And some people really get excited about pollinators. They want their whole garden to be about pollinators. Some people get really excited about birds. And they want to design a native plant um, garden that attracts birds. And so your garden doesn't have to be everything to everyone. But just kind of if you start dabbling, you can kind of find like what interests you. And I think whatever captures your curiosity, that's there's power in that. So I don't know if I touched on this yet, but the Friends of Birmingham Botanical Gardens, we're um, a nonprofit that supports the work of the Birmingham Botanical Gardens, but BBG is actually owned and operated by the city of Birmingham. And so we come alongside and do a lot of the education, the communication, the fundraising, um, and then the job of the garden support team within the Friends is to help us leverage our resources very strategically um, in coming alongside the city. But um, If you are local, we would love for you to become a member of the Friends. That's what helps us um, keep the gardens free and open to the public 365 days a year. Um, And there's a lot um, of benefits to that, too. You get discounts on different classes that we do. But you also, when you're a member here, um, we have a reciprocal program with over 300 gardens across the country. So you could go to Atlanta Botanical Garden and get in there free if you're a member here or Huntsville Botanic. Um, I've 
honestly haven't paid to enter a garden in a very long time since um, being on staff here. Um, but we would love your support. And if you're local, we'd also love you to volunteer. Um, so much of what we're able to do here is through volunteers. So um, we'd love for you to visit as well. And please, um, I'm normally always here. I would love to um, say hi to anyone who comes to visit. All right. Well, um, Molly, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for I hope me. everybody has learned something today. I know I have. I've mm-hmm. really enjoyed uh, talking with you and learning about your experience. And uh, hopefully uh, you will take some of these principles and apply them to your landscape. And as always, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to Uh, contact your local county extension office. From the Ground Up is a production of the Alabama Cooperative Extension System.